The book of Ecclesiastes asks a very real question. What's the point of life? Why bother with any of it? And Solomon's answer is, well, everything you do in your life is going to end up destroyed. I was listening to a talk on this and and the speaker in that said, no matter what you do, in reality, your great-great-grandchildren or even your great-grandchildren are not going to know your name. Who can name the fourth president of the United States? A very important person in his day. You can look it up, but no one, no one knows who he is. Everything you do in this mortal life is going to end. And that's where he starts. But by the end of the book, he says, well, well, what should we do in response to all of that? And he says, well, serve God, fear God and keep his commandments. Well, why? Why are, we, why are we going to serve God and keep his commandments if all we're doing here is of no value in the end? And I think he comes to that partly in the chapter tonight where he says that wisdom is good and, and, and more than wisdom, living wisely is of benefit and is going to have eternal advantage to us. And he comes to that, I believe, from his observation in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he goes through all of the things that there's a time for. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. All of these things, no matter what you do, you're going to have to move on to the next thing. You, you know, it might be very important to have breakfast, but by lunchtime you're going to eat again. All these things you're doing, your life is a cycle of things that just need to be repeated. But having observed all of that, he gets to verse 11. And he says there, speaking of God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. That in the doing of those things, in the doing of those things that are vain, there is a beauty to it. There might not be eternal value to it, but there's beauty in it while it lasts. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to live a beautiful life for him. That although our lives, all the things we do, might not amount to anything, although our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren might not know our names or what we've done, there is beauty in the eyes of God for the person who lives their life beautifully in his eyes. And hopefully we'll get to that, an, an observation of that tonight. So he starts the chapter in verse 1, hardly surprising. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. A good name, a good reputation is good to have, but he says there that the, that the, the conclusion of having that a good name is better than ointment, a good name is to be valued. Well, in that case, well, you, you better to reach your death having preserved your good name than to have to be back at the day of your birth, where you have all the opportunity in the world to ruin your good reputation. Over in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment to give off a stench. 
So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. And so we need to be careful with how we live, to preserve our good name, both for those around us and our good name in the eyes of God. In verse 2 to 4, he gives us the advice of attending funerals. He says there, verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He says we need to consider our mortality. And one of the things I find interesting about verses like this where it says, you know, we can read it off and we can, we can say, well, look, it's, there's, there's value in going to a funeral because you can take lessons from it. But do we actually do it? Like, I know for myself, I'll avoid going to funerals if I don't have to. I don't like them. They make me sad. But we should. We should go and actually consider our mortality. Because by considering our mortality... We can place a value on the time that we have. Solomon had all of the wealth in the world. He could do whatever he wanted, but death was coming for him. He's an old man as he writes Ecclesiastes, considering his life and going, I've I've built this, I've done this, and the whole lot was pointless. I've wasted my time. Time is all we have. Money comes and goes, all those other things come and go, but the time that we have to serve our God is passing. So I thought about this, I thought, well, what was the last funeral I went to? And it was, it was that of Uncle John King. <clears throat> Uncle John was a monumental brother for us at Brighton. He was always there to to have a laugh, but more importantly, he was there to give advice. And he wasn't afraid to come up to you and tell you exactly how you'd done wrong in your talk. Um, And he, he was the, he, for myself personally, he was the one who I had my preliminary examination for baptism with. And I was thinking about this in preparing the talk that at that time when I was first baptised, there was a number of brothers in the ecclesia whose talks I listened to. I, you know, when, they, when they were coming to speak, it would be great, this person's going to do a good talk. And we thought we could, I, in my mind, I was like, well, they're going to be there. They're still going to be there. And the number of those brothers who either are too old to really give a talk now or have passed on, and are no longer active in the ecclesial world is really quite staggering. And that wasn't in reality that long ago. But that in, in considering the passing of those brothers or, or their, their incapacitation with old age, we can place value on what we have now, 
on the brothers that we have, brothers and sisters in the ecclesia that we have now, who can have a positive impact on us. And I think we all can also consider the impact of our own lives. What in our own life can we do to impact the ecclesia? And for someone like Uncle John, it was a lot at Brighton. He did a lot for our ecclesia. But he didn't get there by mistake. He didn't end up being able to help the ecclesia just at the end of his life with the experiences that he'd had. He built up to that of a lifetime lived in service to the ecclesia. And so for us now, I'll include myself in this, at the the beginning of our lives in the ecclesia of what we can do, we can't underestimate the impact that we can have on the ecclesial world because we will have an impact one way or the other. So let's make our lives lives of positive impact, of growth and of help to our ecclesial body. Verse 5 and verse 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Now, we're not going to like it when people tell us off, tell us that we've fallen short in some way. And I was thinking about this, and I think there's quite a good analogy. I mean, I came up with it, so I'm happy with it. Works for me. Is the difference between a coach and a cheerleader. Who's going to have more impact on the running of a football team? Those who are jumping up and down on the sidelines going, well done, you kicked the ball, good work, no matter what happens. And, you know, if, if the game goes horribly and doesn't go according to plan, well, it was probably the umpire's fault and the other team cheated. That's, that's the role of the cheerleader. But the person who's going to actually make the football team or whatever it happens to be play better is the coach who says... You need to practice kicking the ball through the middle of the goalpost, not to the side, straight down the middle. Come on, you can do it. He'll tell them where they're going wrong. And for us in the ecclesia, in our lives, if someone cares enough about us, about our eternal salvation, to tell us where we might be going wrong, we should give them the benefit of listening to them. They might be wrong, they might be right but we should at least listen to the rebuke that's offered. It's there to help us. Verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. What is a bribe? Thinking about it. A bribe is a payment that is made to us to make us do something that we either know is wrong or that we don't want to do. It's a, it's a payment to go, look, do this, come on, just sneak this under the table, don't worry, we'll bribe our way through. And for us in our lives, we're going to be marketed to by the world to sell ourselves to the world, to sell ourselves to the flesh, to sell ourselves to our jobs, to our careers, to our houses, to whatever it might be. We're going to be asked to sell ourselves for that. 
For Eve in the garden, it was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And death came because of it. For Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver that he sold his master for. And for us, it could be any number of things. Any number of things that say to us, well, we'll give up on the kingdom for that. What's our price going to be? What career are you going to give up or are you going to take to put you on one side or the other of the kingdom? What sacrifices are you willing to make in your life? What sacrifices will you be unwilling to make? A bribe will corrupt our heart. Verse 8, he again reiterates the need for considering the end of a thing. That our focus should be on where we're going to be at the end of our lives. In verse 9, he says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. We need to control our anger and our resentment. It's easy for us to focus on things that annoy us. And if we do, it's going to, it says, it says there, it's going to lodge in our hearts. If we allow ourselves to be angry, we might think, oh, I'm just angry, I'm angry over here by myself. It's not affecting anyone. I'm just, you know, I'm annoyed that that speaker spoke in that way or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Things will annoy us in life. And if we allow ourselves to get angry, it's going to stick. And then when we see that person again, we're still going to be angry with them. And I was listening to a talk during the week by brother Bob Lloyd. It happened to be the last one that he gave before he died. And he said that as soon as someone upsets him in some way, he prays for them. Because you can't be angry with someone you're praying for. And I thought that's a, that's a beautiful uh, way to think about it, that especially within the ecclesial world, we are going to rub up against people the wrong way. People are going to rub up against us the wrong way. We are going to have cause to be angry and cause to be annoyed and cause to be frustrated with our brothers and sisters. But we want them in the kingdom. So don't allow yourself that time to be angry at them because that's going to build up into resentment and it's going to stick around and it's going to be hard for you to have a proper relationship with them. Verse 10, this is a good one for us younger people to sort of point to the oldies in the back row there. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There's no point, even if, the, even if the good old days were good, they're past. Don't try and live your life going, if only it was 50 years ago, that time's been and gone. We can't get it back, we can't go back there. Don't waste your life on things that you can't control. Many things are going to be out of your control. Don't waste your life worrying about them. In Matthew, 10, uh, Matthew 6, verse 34, Christ says to his disciples that sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Things of the past and things of the future can't be controlled. What we can control is our time now. In verse 11, we sort of get to the key verse of our talk tonight. 
Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So you see there that if we have wisdom, it gives us the advantage of preserving our life, preserving our life eternally. In verse 11, the New English translation has for that, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. And I believe that is the accurate rendering of that verse. Because we see there that, that wisdom is good in the same way that an inheritance is good. Because we've then got that comparison again in verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. It's a comparison being made here. It might be good to go, right, if I had all the money in the world, as people do, if I win the lottery, they'll go out and buy a lottery ticket every week just in case they might win. And what would we do with that? If only I won the, if only I won the lottery, if I, only I had all the money I needed, well, in that case, I could do all of these things. And we, we seek after and we strive for that, that we, if we had the financial backing, if we had this, if we had that, it would be great. But Solomon here says, well, wisdom is just as good as that. That wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun. For those who understand the overall course of life, for those who understand that life now, possessions now, wealth now, isn't going to help us out in the long run, if that's where we're at, we can understand that a, wise, a wisely lived life is just as good as all the wealth in the world. Verse 13, he goes on to consider that our life now is not going to be perfect. We like to think that just because we have the truth, just because we have the knowledge of God and wisdom, that our life is meaningful, that our life is lasting. But our life now is subject to vanity. It is subject to failure and futility. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has established the world as it now is in a crooked way. And we might think, well, that's not fair. Why is this the case? Why is whatever it might be? Why is this the thing that hurts me? Well, if we come across to uh, 2 Corinthians 12, we see the Apostle Paul struggled with this question. We see there, so 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7. And he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. So just because God was working directly with Paul so much in his life, he says, well, to stop me getting too proud about that, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
So we, we're not told what this thorn in the flesh was, but there was something in Paul's life that really got to him, that really got in his way. As he saw it, this, this thing is, is stopping me from being able to work properly in the ecclesia. This thing is stopping me. And he says to God three times, please, just why, why this? Why do I have to put up with this? Why is this working against me? And God says, your life's not going to be perfect, Paul. You've got a thorn in the flesh. And what I've given you is enough. We need to trust that the grace and the mercy that God offers to us in our life, the comfort that he gives us in our mortal life is enough. His grace is sufficient for us. He is giving us what we need to get to the kingdom. On our way back to Ecclesiastes, we'll stop in uh, Romans 8. So Romans 8, verse 18. Considering the, the futility and the vanity of the life that we're now living. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation that we're now a part of is subject to futility. But the futility and the vanity of our life now is given to us with a purpose. As we have there in the end of verse 20, God subjected this world to futility, to vanity, so that we might have hope for what is to come. Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So yes, we are subject to mortality. Yes, our lives are futile. Yes, our lives are going to have problems. They're going to have troubles. Don't be surprised when they come up. It's there to make us hope for a better time. Uh, Coming down to, so back in Ecclesiastes 7. We have there a a fascinating pairing of verses. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So it seems to say here, don't, don't be too good. Don't be too wise. What's he really saying? In Ecclesiastes 1 
and verse 16 and 17. Solomon considered himself to be overly wise. We see there, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. And so Solomon looked at his life and said, I am pretty smart. I am pretty wise. But what does he then go and do? He goes and does folly. And so, as I said at the start, we have a difference between wisdom and living wisely. Solomon had all the wisdom in the world, but he applied himself not in living wisely, but in living foolishly. If we go back to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, we're given the advice that was to be given to the kings of Israel. And God says to the people of Israel, he says, look, there's going to come a time you are going to go and set a king over you. But when you get a king, make sure the king does these things because that's how he's going to be successful. And Solomon seems to have looked at this list and went, I'm going to test every single one of those and see if it's actually the case. So... uh, Verse 14, when you come to the land that Yahweh your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and then say, I'll set, it, I'll, set over me, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom Yahweh your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now we get to the advice that Solomon really should have listened to and the checklist that he seemed to be going against. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since Yahweh has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So these were the things that the king was not to do. And, what was the, and, and what, why was that? Well, down in verse 20, it says, go and, read, go and read through all the law, go and write it down, keep it, focus on it, think about it. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. Solomon looked at his own life and considered himself and said, I'm the wisest man that's ever been over Jerusalem, so I can give it a go. And if Solomon was the wisest man and he failed so miserably in giving it all a go, well, maybe we should listen to the advice as well. In Luke 5, verse 32, Christ, in speaking to the Pharisees, who said, why are you you going to... The publicans and sinners, the tax collectors and sinners, those who are labelled, we're not told what the sinners were, but it just says, those people, that group of sinners over there, why is Christ going to those? Well, because they understand that they're not righteous. 
Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We need to recognise that we're not perfect, that we're not going to follow God perfectly. And so don't destroy yourself in trying to be that person. Understand that you are mortal and that you are sinful. But he goes there then in verse 17. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And just in the same way that we can't be too confident in going, I've got everything covered, don't worry, I'm wise, I'm righteous, I've got this sorted. He says, don't give yourself over to sin. Don't just go, well, I've stuffed up, I might as well just see this through to the end. He says, don't give yourself over to sin. Why are you going to die before your time? There's a beautiful psalm along these lines. We go to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Because God can forgive us and because God does forgive us, it's worth seeking that forgiveness. It's worth coming. If there was no way of salvation with God, we could ignore him. There'd be no point in serving. If there was no, no salvation with God, leave him to one side. Why bother? What's the worst that's going to happen? But because there is forgiveness, because there is salvation, we need to respect God. We need to come to him and we need to turn to him. And so we can't just uh, leave our lives and focus on that. And he goes on to say there in verse 18, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. And so he says, take hold on this. This is something that's not vain. Following God and following his commandments is not vain. Seeking forgiveness. Don't give, not giving up, not giving yourself over to wickedness is not vain. He says, take hold of this, and if you do, well, the one who fears God will come out of both of them. Verse 19, wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so this is a summary of those previous verses. That Solomon had all of the armies built up in Israel. He'd gone through and he'd done all of that and he says, well, wisdom is more beneficial than all of those things. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so we need to understand that that's the state that we're in. 
In verse 21 and verse 22, he gives us more advice for life. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. People are going to say horrible things about you from time to time. But don't hold other people to the same, to a different standard as you hold yourself. Understand that people will say things in passing and let it go. If you go and hang on to that and go, oh, why did that person say that about me? Well, it's not going to help you in the long run. You know that you've gone and said the same sorts of things about other people. In verse 23, we have, I believe, Solomon's admission of guilt. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Solomon had ignored all of God's commandments. He'd gone and done all the things that the kings were not supposed to do. And he, he says back in, back in uh, 1 verse 16, he says, I, I had complete understanding while I was doing all of these things. I, I knew what I was doing. Solomon knew that he was doing the wrong thing. He knew how he was doing the wrong thing. But he still chose to do it. And he thought he was being wise. He thought he was getting ahead in life. But in reality, when he considers his actions, the wisdom that he thought he had was far from him. And then we come to some interesting verses at the end of the chapter. where Solomon looks at his worst mistake. And this mistake that Solomon made would go on to destroy the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. Solomon's mistakes in his life would be the primary cause of the Babylonian captivity. And he starts there in verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to know wickedness and folly and the foolishness that is madness. So I've searched through everything. And what's he found? And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes from her, but the sinner is taken by her. And so he said, from, in reality, the male perspective, the lust of the flesh is the thing that is, the, as far as he is concerned, is more bitter than death. We have access to all of the lusts of the flesh that we might want to satisfy. And Solomon says, well, giving into that is more bitter than death and that we need to fear God to escape from that. And he goes on considering this further. He says, verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Solomon had 
a massive problem with the women in his life. They were the cause that turned him away from God. If we come back to chapter 2, we see why, 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 why was Solomon able to find one man among the thousand? It, it was rare for Solomon to find a man who was of, of benefit and of use to him. But in his, all of his searching through all of the women in his life, he couldn't get there. And why was that? Well, it was what he was looking for in his relationship with them. Back in chapter 2, starting at verse 8, um, the, we have there, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. I believe uh, the King James there has musical instruments, possibly. Um, there's no good reason for that translation, really. Um, it, it is uh, wives, mistresses or women is, is what that word there means. So he says there, i got singers, and then i also got, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. The New English translation has for that, and it puts it very, very clearly for us. I acquired male singers and female singers for myself, and what gives man sensual delight, a harem of beautiful concubines. I was far wealthier than all my predecessors in Jerusalem, yet I maintained my objectivity. I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments gave me joy. This was my reward for all my effort. That's what Solomon filled his palaces with. He married a thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He was on the throne for approximately 40 years. That's an average of a new wife in his life every two weeks for 40 years. When he says he gave himself over to pleasure and held nothing back, that's what he filled his life with. And if we come back to 2 Kings chapter 11, 2 Kings chapter 11, we have a further discussion of this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Zidonian and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. God had clearly said, if you go and follow after these people, they are going to turn away your heart from me. And what did Solomon go and do? He went after as many of them as he could get. 700 wives, 300 concubines from all of the nations around, all the nations that God had said, don't go to those people, don't go to people like that, because if you do, they will lead you away from me. 
Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. And it goes on to describe how he set up the high places, the idolatry in the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And for every single one of the kings of Judah, all the way through to get to Josiah, for every single one of them it says, of those who served God, it says they served God but the high places were still there. The high places still remained. What Solomon did in his life, in the wives he sought, in the relationships he had, turned away his heart and left a scar on the nation of Israel for the rest of its existence in reality. For the entire period of the kingdom from Solomon on, we have high places there until we get to Josiah. That's the result of that relationship. And for us, we're given similar advice. Paul tells us to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers because it's going to result in the same thing for us. We need to take an example from Solomon because the people that we have relationships with are going to have the biggest impact on our life. And the result of it can be utter destruction, not only of ourselves but of those around us. Be careful who you have a relationship with. And so to conclude, I want to come across to 2 Corinthians 4. We've considered tonight our own mortality. We've considered that our life is passing and that the thing that we should do with our time is to live wisely before God. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. But we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death of Jesus, over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. Consider what God has given to us. Consider the treasure that we hold and the hope that we have in our mortal dying bodies. Our life now is vain. Our life now is passing. It will come to an end. But we've been given treasure to possess and to demonstrate in our mortal bodies. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our life now is vain. The hope of the future 
is powerful and weighty, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're vain, they're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. God bless. Thank you, Brother James.